0: Welcome back to the third installment of our podcast series, The 721 All That You Need to Know About Menstrual Periods. I am Dr. Nefertiti Harmon Durant. I'm an adolescent medicine physician in the Female Adolescent Bleeding Clinic in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And I'm a proud member of the Foundation for Women and Girls with Blood Disorders, FWGBD. I have the pleasure of introducing my wonderful colleague and co host, Dr. Shweta Gupta, pediatric hematologist at the Indiana Hemophilia and Thrombosis Center at Indianapolis, and a member of the Foundation for Women and Girls with Blood Disorders. We both share a common
1: passion for taking care of young girls with heavy menstrual bleeding. It is great to be back, Dr. Durand. I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Claudia Borzutsky. Dr. Borzutsky is an associate professor of pediatrics at the Keck School of Medicine at USC and the Adolescent Medicine Fellowship Program Director at the Children's Hospital Los Angeles. She co-directs CHLA's Combined Hematology Adolescent Medicine Clinic and is also an active member of the Subcommittee of Education and Advocacy on the FWGBD.
0: To recap, in Part 1 of Demystifying IUDs, we had Dr. Patricia Hugelay. She discussed for us what are the options for IUDs for our patients We also discuss what can patients expect with regards to changes in their menstrual bleeding. We discuss how likely is it that patients will have amenorrhea. If not, how likely is it that their periods will be irregular and what are the options to treat their irregular menses? We lastly discuss if patients have changes in their bleeding,
1: are those changes similar for patients with bleeding disorders? And that was not it. We also discussed management of breakthrough bleeding in the setting of an IUD, complications associated with having an IUD, and of course, the rates of IUD expulsion, and is it different for patients with and without a bleeding disorder.
0: And now it's time for part two. And so let's get started. Dr. Brzezinski, if an adolescent with heavy menstrual bleeding wants to be treated with an IUD... Can it be placed within an outpatient setting or do we need to do it under anesthesia? We get this question all the
2: time. And I will say that most
0: people, teenagers
2: included, are able to have their IUD placed while awake and in a regular outpatient medical office. So while having a pelvic exam may be new to many teens, generally they tolerate the IUD insertion procedure really well, and there's no data to support restricting the procedure to those who have had children or to those who've been sexually active. There's also no minimum age, as Dr. Hugelay mentioned in the previous installment, to be considered a good candidate for IUD, though the patient does need to be post They do need to have had a period. It's our collective experience that even teens who've never had anything in their vagina before, tampons included, can tolerate an awake IUD insertion procedure, especially if it's accompanied by calm, reassuring language. Some people call that verbicane, assistance with relaxation and distraction. The experience and severity and duration of the type of pain associated with manipulating the cervix and the uterus, which is sort of colicky, visceral, crampy pain, is really variable and it does not correlate with how many children someone has had or if they've had a procedure before. NSAIDs, if they're not contraindicated or other oral analgesics, are often given at the start of the procedure, but they're really being given to help with the crampy pain that patients have after the procedure, not the pain during the procedure itself. And though cervical blocks using lidocaine have been demonstrated in some studies to reduce the pain associated with IUD insertion, they're not universally used, um, as other studies have not supported this claim. So, for those patients who've had a failed awake procedure attempt, or those who have severe procedural anxiety, or perhaps have developmental delay, or other physical reasons why they could not do the procedure awake, general anesthesia in the OR or twilight anesthesia could be considered. Um, In some cases, a low dose oral anxiolytic can also be trialed prior to insertion. However, we have to think about the risks and benefits of using these additional measures um, and talk about them with every individual patient, particularly given that the entire IUD insertion procedure usually takes five or 10 minutes or even less sometimes.
1: So Dr. Burzutsky, when we talk about um, what to expect post-insertion, what would you tell the patients in terms of pain expectations, how to manage that?
2: Yeah, so while some patients will experience more of that crampy pain intermittently for even up to a few weeks after IUD insertion, sometimes even longer, um, most patients report that after one to two days, it largely subsides. So again, NSAIDs, including celecoxib, can be recommended or prescribed if needed, as well as the use of warm packs and other just local pain management measures.
1: I have a follow-up question to that, Dr. Burzutsky. So what do I tell my young teenagers and women in terms of expectation post-procedure of pain management
2: we do need to think about severe abdominal pain that's associated with nausea or vomiting or if it localizes to one side or the other, because these can be indicative of something more serious like a uterine perforation, and patients should be advised about the warning signs of a perforation
0: before they leave the office so they know what to let you know about. What what are the red flags? A question that I frequently get asked before I send patients to get an IUD is whether or not the IUDs have any impact on fertility. We get that question all
2: the time. Um, So IUDs currently in use really have no known detrimental causal effect on future fertility. So they really can be offered to patients at any point of their reproductive life. In the past, they were offered primarily to Paris women due to the potential for increased risk for pelvic inflammatory disease or PID and the associated threats to fertility that come with PID. And that was due to the type of materials used in the IUD strings previously. But with our current IUDs, if testing for gonorrhea and chlamydia is performed at the time of the IUD placement and if identified infections are treated promptly, once the IUD has been in place for 30 days, the risk for PID is the same as for patients with no IUD. So it is, I will say, our experience that many patients, particularly those from communities that have been subjected to reproductive injustices such as coercive use of LARC methods or sterilization as a means of population control, tend understandably to approach contraception in general with a much higher degree of skepticism than those from communities who have not been subjected to these highly unethical practices. And this goes across to even if we're just using it for management of bleeding control, not just contraception. So LARC methods, given that they are harder for users to start and stop, as opposed to user controlled methods like pills, patch, ring, or even injection, tend to be viewed with even more suspicion. So we have to just always remember it is not our job to convince patients to choose one method versus another, whether it's for birth control or for management of their menstrual bleeding, but rather to provide them with as much accurate information as we can so they can make a truly informed choice. And I find that um, with some patients, if I acknowledge this history of reproductive injustice openly and honestly, And with humility about the mistakes that our medical profession has made, it can really help to build a foundation for trust and better exchange of information.
1: What about the effect on fertility of stopping the periods? You know, parents and their families are often worried, this is not natural, and the body is losing its means of cleansing itself. What do you have to say about that? How do I reassure my patients Yeah, we get this question
2: a lot as well, and not just with IUDs, with many of the different hormonal medications that we use. So as Dr. Ugale mentioned in the previous episode, the reason that menstrual periods become so much lighter and less frequent or stop altogether when we use these hormonal IUDs is that the progestin being released from the IUD causes the endometrium or the lining of the uterus to become extremely thin and dormant, one could say. And I often explain this to patients using a diagram or a picture. I just might draw it on the table paper that they're sitting on and explain to them that this is also completely reversible, that the lining will build back to its natural thickness shortly after the IUD is removed, and that by the same token, their fertility will return quickly. In fact, we inform patients who are sexually active that if they do not want to get pregnant, they should use an alternative form of contraception immediately after removing their IUD.
0: Here is the other question that always comes up. Patients are always concerned about weight gain and acne. Are these issues with the IUD use over
2: time? First, it's important to know that because the levonorgestrel, the progestin released by the hormonal IUDs is absorbed mostly, not exclusively, but mostly at the level of the uterus and leads to much lower circulating levels of hormones than with other hormonal medications, The likelihood of side effects at a location far away from the uterus are much lower with the IUD than with those other methods, like an oral method or a transdermal method. So the IUD has not been associated with weight gain, and though we don't have great data about acne, in our experience, it's also
1: very unusual. So the most frequent complaint from patients is breakthrough bleeding. And of course, being a hematologist, I worry about that complication the most. So can you give us some information about how often does breakthrough bleeding actually occur in real life and what can we tell our patients about when will it stop and what can they do about it?
2: Well, the most common side effect reported with hormonal IUDs is, as we've been talking about, changes to the menstrual cycle. So it is really, really common. For some patients, they will have more frequent and sometimes pretty heavy bleeding in the first few months after placement of the IUD. But for most of them, that will slow down substantially by six months time. And for most people, they will have less frequent and much less heavy menstrual flow, depending on which hormonal IUD
0: was used. Another question that I often get, especially from the mothers, Is about infection and whether or not the IUD is associated with increased frequency of sexually transmitted diseases.
2: Yeah, and that is a good question because things have changed over time with this. So um, having an IUD does not increase one's risk of getting sexually transmitted infections such as gonorrhea or chlamydia. But if one of those microorganisms is present at the time of the insertion itself, there is an increased risk of developing an ascending infection or PID. So as we were talking about earlier, the standard of care is to test for those at the time of insertion. If the infection is found and treated within one week's time, then the risk of PID is not increased relative to the general population. Also, it's important to note that if the medical provider doing the IUD insertion can see actual clinical evidence of a cervical infection at the time they are preparing to place the IUD, then the IUD insertion should actually be rescheduled until after the patient has been treated for that infection.
0: Thank you so much. That is wonderful information to share with our providers. Here's another piece of information that patients often comment to me on pokey strings. So can you tell us about that? Many patients will report that their partners have discomfort from the strings of the IUD, but what do you recommend for the management of this complaint?
2: Yeah, uh, we do occasionally have patients who are sexually active with male partners who say that their partners have experienced this kind of discomfort because their penis is being poked by the ends of the IUD strings. So this can almost always be managed um, either by the provider trimming the strings, which does involve another speculum exam, so patients just have to be kind of counseled about the pros and cons of that, or um, during a speculum exam also by tucking the strings back around the cervix. Um, Also, we can reassure patients that the strings do usually tend to soften over time, So for patients who don't want another speculum exam, some reassurance that this will likely improve will go a long way. And this is also another great reason to encourage patients to use a condom, since condoms might decrease the irritation
1: caused by the strings. So my young teenagers, specifically those who are swimmers and use tampons quite frequently, have this question about, can we use tampons with IUDs? And I tell them it's fine, go ahead, use them. But what do you advise them in your clinic? Yeah, I
2: agree. Uh, We tell people that they can use tampons. It's perfectly fine once the IUD is in place. um, And removing the tampon should not pull the IUD out as long as the IUD is correctly placed and the strings were not left excessively long. So it may require a little bit more care, but it should be completely fine to use tampons.
0: Is there anyone who cannot get an IUD? So very few people
2: are unable to get a hormonal IUD, particularly if they're teenagers or young adults, since that group is very unlikely to have cervical or uterine cancer, both of which are contraindications to IUDs. For young people with known malarian anomalies, like a unicornuate or bicornuate uterus, IUDs are contraindicated, particularly if they're being used for contraception since the IUD may not reach the fundus properly in the case of a differently-shaped uterus. If the provider can't be reasonably sure that the patient is not pregnant, then they should also postpone the IUD insertion until they can be. And as noted earlier, if there is a clinically apparent cervical or uterine infection, then the IUD insertion should be postponed. And lastly, if the patient has unexplained vaginal bleeding not consistent with the normal menstrual period that has not yet been evaluated— since hormonal IUDs can cloud that picture further, IUD insertion should be delayed until that evaluation has been completed.
0: Thank you so very much, Dr. Claudia Brzezinski, for joining us. And thank you also to Dr. Patricia Hugelay from our last podcast. And a special thanks to my co-host, Dr. Shweta Gupta. Please come back for our next episode of the 721, a podcast about menstrual periods and everything related. For more information on heavy menstrual bleeding, please visit the FWGBT website at fwgbd.org.